There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tom Bernard Show with Tevin Pittman, Dave Schrader, co-host Catherine Brandt, Andy Brandt Bernard, Cassie Schrader. And we'll be right back in a couple of short minutes. Mark Anthony continues with segment two, hour two. Tom Bernard. Show. Walzer Automotive Group started in Minnesota over 60 years ago. Most people know something about the Walzer way. Upfront, no haggle pricing, work with one person from start to finish, or the free lifetime powertrain warranty on most vehicles sold in Minnesota. What you might not know is they are the only automotive group that is a member of the Keystone Club. They join such great Minnesota companies as General Mills, Target, Cargill, the Twins, Wolves, and Vikings in pledging 5% pre-tax profits to local charities. It's a great example of their core values. Do the right thing, display positive energy, be open-minded, and lead by example. So if you're in the market for a new or used car, check out walzer.com or stop into one of their dealerships. Please don't say, tell them Tommy sent you, because it sounds fake, and I hate it. Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt then talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. It's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? uh, Either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw and Bryant. Oh, Cassie's rocking out today. Mm -hmm. We're back. At the Tom Bernard Show. What do you think of that drop? <laughs> Sounded like you were dropping something. <laughs> That's really nice. Mark Anthony, our special guest, uh, we wanted to uh, have Mark on for another segment because uh, we didn't get into a lot of stuff that Mark is involved in right now. So, Mark, I just want to turn this segment over to you, and you can talk about whatever you wish to talk about instead of answering questions. Well, I'm always happy to answer questions. Um, I'm I'm currently in Denver. Uh, I just finished a tour of Dallas, and it was cool because I was at the Grassy Knoll. So (laughs) we got we got to do a whole a whole show on that sometime. But um, I will be speaking this week at the Vail Symposium in Vail, Colorado, on Thursday and Friday, August second and third, and. My presentation on the second is going to be called Debunking Death, the Science of Reincarnation and Near-Death Experiences. And I'll be presenting um, a lecture accompanied by some PowerPoint slides about how quantum physics 
explains the reality of the afterlife, and not just the reality of the afterlife, but a logical and rational explanation for reincarnation. Because a lot of people think it's, you know, a bunch of people wearing tie-dye, running around, flinging granola and snorting sandalwood incense, you know, but reincarnation is now being studied legitimately by scientists throughout the world, and it's also at the root of all the major religions, including Christianity. And then, of course, on, on uh, Friday, I'll be presenting an evening of spirit communication. And this is where I'll be using my ability as a psychic medium to connect random audience members to loved ones in spirit. Um, I've been honored to be invited not only to the Vail Symposium, but also to the IANS 2018 Annual Conference. IANS is the International Association of Near-Death Studies. And we've got a really fantastic program lined up. It's between August 30th and September 3rd in Seattle. And I'll be presenting um, not only an evening of spirit communication, one of the one of the nights, but I'll also be presenting May the Force Be With You, Near-Death Experiences and Interdimensional Communication. And this is going to get into how near-death experiences not only change people's lives, but have impacted our pop culture. And I'm just going to throw one little teaser out there. Guess who had a near-death experience whose work affects everyone, and that's George Lucas. So I'll oh, just yeah. leave it at yeah. that. Yeah. No, <laughs> I'll absolutely. just leave it at that. And look what happened to his hair. Thank you very much. Great to be here. <laughs> well, yeah, and look what happened to his bank account when he sold uh, Lucasfilms to Disney. For only 4.4 um, uh, billion. But, uh, he's, he's quite an amazing person because so much, I mean, how many times, you know, if you say May the Force be with you or Jedi Knights or Yoda, I mean, we all know what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but i, I got to uh, remind so you, he also did Howard really the Duck. <laughs> yeah, he did that. He did so let's, yeah. let's temper well, the fanboy stuff and also, um, I've also um, been invited by the East West Bookshop of Seattle, and, um, and, and so I'll be doing an evening of spirit communication there as well, just prior to the IANS conference. So people would like to come out and see me. And you know what's really cool, uh, Tom and Dave, wherever I go in the country, I, I love this. I mean, whether it's uh, up in Buffalo, New York, to, to Phoenix, uh, to, to L.A., to Seattle, people come and go, I heard you on Tom Bar- Barnard's show. I heard you on uh, with Darkness Dave. I mean, the Army of Darkness and, and your followers, uh, Tom, are everywhere. So I want to thank, thank all of them, not only on your behalf for being such, you know, loyal loyal fans and listeners, but also for, you know, for listening to me and coming out to my events and, and for, for information on my events. Um, feel free to visit my website, evidenceofeternity.com. It's the same as my last book, Evidence of Eternity, and it'll explain to you, you know, how to get tickets and what events I'll, um, I'll be appearing at. But uh, it really has been amazing. Like, wherever I go, I run into to people that come up and say, yeah, yeah, I heard you with Dave Schrader or, or I heard you on Tom's show. Um, what was the, the, the ghost flight, the ghost flight show that, that oh, I yeah, did with ghost Dave? Ghost Flight 401, um, right. Boy, that one, that one really uh, shook up a lot of people. So, so that, was, that was quite interesting. That is a wonderful thing to hear Dave's name. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a big deal, Tom. Kind of big deal, Tom. Well, 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 let me know. tell you, the whole time I was at the Grassy Knoll in Dallas oh. a couple days ago, and Dave and I, you know, we're always talking about this and conspiracy theories. Um, it is really uncanny, and I was fortunate. I met somebody in Dallas. He was 12 years old. He's now in his late 60s. He's 12 years old. He was there. And, in fact, he goes, look, here's the picture. He uh, showed the newspaper. This is him. And, uh, you know, it it was fascinating because they heard shots, and he says, we looked over the grassy knoll, and we're seeing in the fence. And there's still a fence there. It's not the same fence because, you know, it's been 50-plus years. They said, we saw clouds of smoke coming from above the fence. Oh, you know, so, <laughs> yeah, so I don't mean to laugh because it was a horrible thing. And uh, and he said, um, there's a couple, there's a number of people who are, are they were um, children and uh, teenagers. They're, they're still alive, who are eyewitnesses. And everybody says they all looked right at the grassy knoll because they heard shots coming from there. Mm. So it certainly is one of the conspiracy theories that I, I, um, I will keep an open mind on. So Mark, you know, you got that. as far as having a sense of humor about it, Dennis Miller had one of the great lines in comedy history 
We said, who was doing the security at the Dallas police station after Kennedy was shot? I mean, think about that. He downstairs, he calls upstairs, he goes, hey, look, the guy who owns a titty bar is here, that Jack Ruby, he's got a gun. Should I let him in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you get in How do you get into the police Dallas station? Police Department? Yeah. Oh, and what people also seem to gloss over is that Jack Ruby was an associate of the New Orleans uh, crime family, right. the mafia, yep. and he was terminally ill from cancer. Oh. And if you understand the structure <laughs> of the mafia, you do an honor to the family, you sacrifice, you will give your life if asked to do so he was going to die anyway yep. he gets into the dallas uh, police department with what like a 357 magnum yeah. gets right up to lee harvey oswald who the last thing lee harvey oswald said looking directly at a camera is i'm a patsy meaning i'm being used and framed or at least the focus of all because he was a nut too he was in he was, yeah. soviet union a couple months before that and jack ruby then kills him Okay, yep. and then of course Jack Ruby, being a good made man, never says a thing about it. So See, I don't. I don't. Yeah, think... when you start looking at that, it kind of. Yeah, kinda I don't know that Oswald was the nut and... everybody thinks he was. Really? You know, I sat down. I, I had this interview. Uh, this woman reached out to me. She's like, "Hey, Judith Very Baker is going to be in Minnesota. Um, if we keep this very covert, she'll come in studio with you." I'm like, "Who the hell is Judith Very Baker?" Right. And uh, she she was Lee Harvey Oswald's lover. Yep. yep. And I'm like, okay. And so she comes in the studio, and we sit there, and I'm sitting facing her like I'm facing you. And it's Julie I'm, or Judy? Judy. Yeah, Judy. Baker. And she's got this. she was also Frank Sinatra's. No, that's a different girl. That was a, Judy Baker had a lot of fun with a lot of people. Baby. She had, well, Judith, <laughs> not, not Judith Berry Baker. Uh, she's a different gal, but she oh, had this okay. big book, and she starts opening it up. So she's got, like, evidence to back all of her stories. Oh, man. Of, of, you know, time cards signed by uh, Oswald, all the stuff, because she worked with him. She was with him. And at one point, she's talking all oh, this. You know, I remember this one time Lee and I were walking along, and the song came on, and he started singing Dream Lover to me, and blah, blah, blah. And Tim comes back from commercial and starts playing it, and she just sobs. And it was like right. one of those, you knew right. this wasn't just a smoke screen. Yeah. And then she started telling this different story that I'd heard about uh, Oswald before. And you start to realize, she goes, no, he was a patriot. As a matter of fact, she said what had happened was he got wind of the assassination on Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And he did his best to report it and try to get it stopped. And then realized, oh, I just stepped in it. Yeah. And he yeah. told her, he goes, I don't think I'm going to survive this. Because Ooh. they knew that he was trying to get this information out. I mean, when they when they busted him, he was an anti-patriot. He was wearing this Marines ring. Yeah, he was, yeah. He was still very patriotic. The, mm -hmm. the photograph is obviously photoshopped back then, you know, and, and altered. Yeah. But I don't think this guy was, uh, you know, I, I went into it very skeptical of the whole story. She made me come out of it really believing that, that maybe he right. was a patsy and that right. this was all... You know, that he really had nothing to do with it other than maybe he was the wrong guy at the wrong time who tried to report this before it hit. And he was trying to, he was actually trying to help kill um, Castro. He was behind a yes, lot of the right. stuff. He worked for the company that created the, uh, um, the, the uh, viral uh, cancer they were working on to try to figure out how to, how to spray or inject people with cancer. And this was you know, just another um, way to, to I, kill there, people. There's a book out, and it's it's older, maybe out of date now, but it was written by Jimmy Fratiano. And he um, he was the highest-ranking mafia official um, to ever turn state's evidence, I think around 1980. And um, he said that what happened with the JFK assassination is that the FBI was ticked, CIA was furious over the Bay of Pigs, and the mafia lost a ton of money. And he said that Castro and Russia, they didn't want JFK dead, especially not Castro, because what was happening is the mafia casinos, they had to pay 37 cents of every dollar that they were making over to Castro. So basically the casinos were a cash cow. But after the whole Bay of Fig Pigs uh, fiasco, they wanted to get rid of them. So there was a CIA-mafia alliance and they hired basically a Corsican hit team, and their one special shooter was this crazed guy from um, Valdosta, Georgia, who's Woody Harrelson's father, right. Charles the Hitman um, Harrelson. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so you know, when you start putting all the pieces together, 
And then when you go to the site, and I know Dave was saying about, you know, you wouldn't shoot somebody right in front of the depository because um, they may pick up on the glare of the scope. But when you go there and you see that, all right, if you're in the deposit, uh, depository and you're looking down on the road, JFK was shot about six to 700 feet to the left of it right before a train trussle. And what happened is when the car, the, the, the limo came around the corner, they have on, on film this guy that holds up, opens an umbrella in full sun, does this like two thing, you know, this this uh, two motions, and basically Kennedy was triangulated and then hit by this um, uh, hit squad. In fact, there's even f- um, uh, film footage of two Dallas cops going up and talking to these guys behind the fence at the top of the grassy knoll. These two guys with rifles, they said, oh, well, they're Secret Service, except for the fact that Secret Service didn't have anyone posted there. So the whole thing, when you start looking at it, if you think that Lee Harvey Oswald is the only person involved with this or is the one that actually assassinated Kennedy, the pieces just don't add up. And every successive president since then keeps saying, oh, well, the Warren Commission, uh, you know, Chief Justice Earl Warren at the time, they found that it was Lee Harvey Oswald. Why? Because if a president said, gee, my CIA and FBI were in league with the mafia and killed somebody, what does that do to the credibility of successive um, presidents? So it's just an interesting thought to look at. We'll put it out there and let our listeners decide. You know, Mark, i got to tell you something. I was 12 years old. I was at St. Anne's Catholic School, came home for lunch, and my father had not been living with us for at least two years. And uh, he had his own problems, believe me. But I was at home when it, when it was announced that President Kennedy had been shot, and my father all of a sudden was banging on the front door. I hadn't seen him in two years. And I let him in, and he was frantic. And I remember he said to my mother and me, because we were the only two home at the time, the mafia just killed the president. We have to leave here right now. And I'll never forget wow. that. It's like, I don't know what the hell that meant, but I very clearly clearly remember him saying that, that he said the mafia has killed the president. we got to get out of here. Well, weird? people tend to forget that um, the Kennedys made their money through running um, uh, illegal booze yeah. into the country during Prohibition. Yep. And Joe Kennedy, the father of JFK and Bobby and, you know, Ted and all of them, he um, pulled a lot of strings to get... Uh, get uh, Chicago and the state of Illinois delivered to Kennedy during the election, because Kennedy, you know, won it just by by a hair. And then what does Bobby do as soon as he takes office as attorney general under his brother John F. Kennedy? He starts going after the mafia. You know, they don't don't take kindly to disloyal (laughs) loyalty. You know, so once again, the pieces are all there. Um, it's, It's a very tragic thing. It certainly changed the world. Um, and, you know, you, you start to wonder what could have been. On the other hand, I did see some science fiction show once, and it was about this guy who goes back in time to stop, you know, the assassination, assassination of JFK, and he does, and then the Third World War happens Whoops. because of the tensions between <laughs> JFK and Khrushchev. So you never know. <laughs> Mark Anthony, thanks so much for your time. If people have questions, how do they get a hold of you, Mark? Um, please go to my website, evidenceofeternity.com, and find out about my upcoming appearances at the Vail Symposium this week and at IANS, the International Association Near-Death Studies, um, August 30th through September 3rd at evidenceofeternity.com. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Cassie. And thank you to all the listeners. Thank you, sir. We'll be back. Tom Bernard Show. It's Tom telling you how easy it's been to lose weight at Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth with their weight loss plan. I'm down over 77 pounds, and I have one more round to go to shed the rest of my unwanted pounds. Find out how to have success losing weight like I did by attending the Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth free informational dinner. It is on Monday, August 20th, 6 p.m. at Jake's in Plymouth. That extra baggage melts away really fast, and one of the best parts is it's just so easy. I am never, ever hungry. Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth has educated me on clean eating, and I now know the foods that work for me and the weight gain trigger foods. Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth will guarantee that you lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth has helped me change my life, and they can help you too. Register for the Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth dinner on August 20th. 
Call 763-333-7337. That's 763-333-7337. If you are a homeowner, you do not want to miss this free event. We are hosting a free seller workshop where we are going to teach you how to net between thirty dollars to $60,000 more on your home sale. Plus, we are going to share our proven systems that will instantly put the control back in your corner. Guarantee yourself the results you deserve when it comes time to sell your house. Our exclusive workshop will be sold out shortly, so call now to secure your free ticket by calling 763-401-SOLD or by visiting sellerworkshop.com. This free seller workshop will be held the week of August 6th. The last workshop sold out very fast, so hurry and call Chris Lindahl Real Estate today to save your free ticket. So call now, 763-401-SOLD, or visit sellerworkshop.com for times, locations, and to secure your free ticket. Okay, you know how it works. Uh, I don't promote people that aren't the real deal or don't do the right thing. This is not a bare-bones situation at all. And the best part is it's free. Oh, sympathy for the devil. We go right from that conversation to the devil. Is yeah, that it? I get it. Way to go, Cassie. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question for everybody on the show. Uh-huh. Um, now, he, what's the name of his organization? The, the, the Eternity thing? What is it? Oh, evidenceofeternity.com is his Evidence website. Evidence of Eternity. Okay. Right. Here's the deal. I've never taken a strong position for or against that idea. But if I leaned one way, why would you not want to wish there were an eternity? Why would you go, there absolutely is not, and when I die, I'm going to disappear? Why wouldn't you want to be around after you die? I'm not saying you have to believe it 100%. Actually, most of the skeptics I know don't believe that it exists, mm-hmm. but they wish it, or they hope it does. Well, yeah. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. Kind of, it's kind of like that uh, gravestone at, at Disneyland. It's like, here lies a, right. an atheist all dressed up and nowhere to go. <laughs> nowhere <laughs> to go. That's very, very funny. Um, but your energy can't be destroyed. The energy that is you theoretically it, theoretically cannot yeah. be destroyed. It goes somewhere. The energy does. I'm not saying your being does or your intellect does. Right, but if we're an electromagnetic force, that yes. can be dispersed. Absolutely. It doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. stay a cohesive no, exactly. energy. Well, but so that would be exist. better, wouldn't it? You what? would become part, part of, of the, the whole. universe. Right, part it, of the whole idea. What's wrong with that? Nothing that's not bad, uh, except for the fact that I, you know that's that's my whole problem with death. I've had a fear of death since I was probably five or six. Yeah. I, I remember staying awake, uh, just terrified Who to go died? to bed. Nobody. Well, really? I mean, my grandmother died when I was about two and a half, three. But well, it was just was, yeah, that's different. So <laughs> it's it's kind of this. I have no understanding or recollection of why I would be terrified of death. I was just yeah. afraid of not waking up. And you didn't that, have a pet or anything that died? No. No, and now, you know, I'm 50 years old, and that fear is still there. Of course, it's getting worse now because I'm 50 years old. Yeah, wait a couple of years, it gets worse. Getting closer, right? Knocking on heaven's door. I just hit the age where every year your odds of dying start going up instead of down. So That's true. At about you, From Damn the it. age of, like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, from the I'm age of basically tension. Don't do this to me, Andy. Yes. The age of basically zero to thirty, your odds of dying go down every year because you know kids can you know die of all sorts of weird stuff, and if you're going to have a genetic disorder, it's probably going to happen in your teens or twenties. Yeah. So thirty true. is like basically the safest age, but then after that, it's all downhill. Things are going downhill. So, yeah. I remember thirty. 20 years ago. 20 years Son ago. Of a biscuit. I will tell you the this good old though. Days. Yeah. I do quote Grapes of Wrath. They're riding in the pickup truck. The whole thing's just falling apart. And one guy says to his brother, I'm, I'm really worried about Ma. She's getting up there, you know. She's 55. No. Like she looked like she was 100. She looked like she was yeah. 100. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, back then, I mean, she was 55. probably smoking laudanum every day. <laughs> it's true. healthy for you. It's good for you to do laudanum. Yeah, it's, uh, but, but the idea that we do exist, I mean, that's, that's my hopes. That's why I've been doing the paranormal show for 12 years and trying to make sense of what comes next and where do yeah, we go and right. what happens. And I've seen so much evidence of something. Something is it, but is it really dead people walking around? Is it? Uh, I, I don't know. That's what keeps me fascinated by the whole topic and, and keep moving. You know, but yeah, I, I hope there's something. And the other day, I had a pretty interesting talk about uh, God on our show, Midnight in the Desert, mm-hmm. where I talked to you know this this guy was saying the science is there to prove that there is a creator. Because there's no way that we could be as intricate as we are yeah, I could down to that. every atom of how our bodies work and evolve mm-hmm. if there wasn't something. 
And of course, then the question is, but then where did the creator come mm-hmm. from? But right? that's kind of irrelevant because right. it's like, you know, in the scope of the entire universe, it's like asking what happens outside the universe when we don't even know what's going on inside the universe. It's yeah. like... It's not even worth asking the question. Well, even yet, Stephen Hawking, who said he didn't believe in God, said, you know, but we can track history all the way back to the Big Bang, and before then, it's kind of in God's hands. Yeah, so, you know, he's, he's kind of like, that's always I been guess my, there is something there, you know, I don't know. That's always been my thought is, yeah, something had to put the matter there, and the most logical explanation is that there was just something big or powerful that just put it there. The energy, right. And, yeah. and that, you know, I've leaned on things like prayer through the years and have watched it work. You know, whether it's intention uh, or, or we're, we're creating and shaping that own destiny, which is part of his Evidence of Eternity book and everything, is that, you know, by, by putting yourself out there and being a part of that, you kind of immerse into this universe. And I've seen really remarkable things happen with prayer. You know, I mean, oh, yeah, I you know, so. that there's just to me, I can't deny that there's something grand going on behind the scenes. You know, I wouldn't be where I am having the life I've had if I, you know, if I didn't believe there was something helping to orchestrate it you know you put yourself in the right place you do the right things and you 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 know give praise in the right places and it seems you know you live in that attitude of gratitude and it seems to come back to you well tevin told me a couple of weeks ago he said he Mm -hmm. hopes you know if there is an afterlife that all uh, people are black but (laughs) i remember you told me white people (laughs) (laughs) jesus said be at the gates high-fiving you I'm Make me a white, white man. Uh, it's like yeah. in, um, what was that movie where Robin Williams' son, he died and then he went to heaven and he became a black man just because he wanted to be a black guy? Oh, what, like yeah. what dreams may come. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. What dreams may come, yeah. That always struck me as kind of weird. <laughs> well, God, like, man, I want to be, <laughs> I want to be a different race. Well, that's interesting like, shouldn't about... you like your own race? Or shouldn't you become no race? Yeah, have, how about no race? You know, Trevor Noah. Ultraviolet blue. Trevor Noah just did a pretty interesting blast uh, where I guess he's been attacked for referring. He was talking about soccer, which I thought was weird. We were talking mm-hmm. about that a week or two ago on the show. But he was talking about um, uh, the French one, and he made some comment about the African. Yeah, they're all from Africa. They're all from Africa. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, they're French. And the French ambassador wrote him this letter and it was it sounds ridiculous oh but God. his response was so I mean, for not an american right his, his whole response was so beautifully spoken about really? the fact of why can't you be both why can't you be french african should because you African live in american, france and you yeah. were born here should we forget where you came from should we forget you know and, and people don't like african-american does that bother you african-american no i mean truthfully me. you're just no. american it yeah. shouldn't matter right. it bothers well, me that it takes so long to say <laughs> <laughs> so just a lazy quotient does it bother yeah shorter word right aren't we all african-american we all came from the cradle of not with this skin sir we're all pretty sure i'm pillsbury american if you look at me then technically we're all african middle eastern european right Neanderthal yes, American. Why'd you call me a Neanderthal? Why'd you have to throw that in? White people are all partially Neanderthal. They are, yeah. Well, your whole, your, your genetics, there are certain things that, uh, you know, obviously you can't, you can't turn off and on certain aspects of your genes. Right. You just can't do you it. like the fact that I'm built like an ant? <laughs> it doesn't matter where you <laughs> came from, you know. How much about, is that gorilla in the window? <laughs> <laughs> thousands of years ago. It, it's interesting when he starts talking about um, reincarnation. Right. A lot of the Eastern Indian faiths are really based on mm-hmm. that. But what, what I have, okay, so let's say you started as a you know grasshopper, and then you got to be a toad, and then you got to be a, you, know, you a worked gorilla. your way up, you worked your way up, yeah. and you got, got to, to be a, a human, right? and you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be the best version of whatever you are at the moment, so that your next evolution, evolution right. gets you into a higher plane. Uh-huh. Well, what do I care about the next guy? Oh, I'm that's dead. not. And that's why you get a chance to come back so you can but you care don't next remember. time. Yeah, but you, you don't remember. Care, you don't remember, though. You, you don't, don't remember, remember being a grasshopper? No, exactly. You don't remember, so what yeah, do you so care? Who, yeah, what a, what that's why matter? I don't understand how that whole thing works. What's... I don't either. And they say that you make these soul contracts, which I think is what the people, most people have a problem believing in, is, yeah, that I chose to come back and be sexually abused by this yeah, person right, and burn right, with cigarettes by right, that person right. and die at an early age. Yeah. But, you know, I guess if you want to look at the whole cosmic spectrum, yeah, you've got lessons to learn. And in every life, you've got to learn these certain deals, which yep. then begets a story, right? Then is, oh, this but is, if you don't remember is your Hitler past the bad lives. guy? 
if that's part of the lessons that people I chose to live, there's a million dollar. Question. No, right, but I mean, here's the deal: if if that whole cosmic belief is in existence, and everybody chooses the life they come into, mm-hmm. you you kind of need the bad guy because well, without the yeah, bad guy, do. people can't learn the lesson. Without the bad guy, Andy Kindler wouldn't have the joke. Donald Trump, he's like Hitler, except for the fact that Hitler served in the army. <laughs> <laughs> And understand, I'm not siding with Hitler in any way, shape, or form. But I'm just saying, you know, I mean, you've got that, and, and I've, I've referenced, I love that scene, and uh, it's a bad movie, and I reference it often, though, is the movie Dracula 2000, which is this great, yeah, stupid, it, yeah. I think it's yep. John Carpenter's or whatever, but it's like Dracula 2000, right, yeah. or Wes Craven, that's what it is. Oh, Wes Craven, there And you at go. the end, they, they give you this great evolve of who Dracula was and why he has fear of silver sunlight and all this it's yeah. because he was judas mm-hmm. Ooh, so pieces like of silver he hung himself at at uh, twilight so that would be the last sunlight he would ever be allowed to see right. if i had to watch twilight the, i'd him right. he, he, <laughs> he, he, he he traded in christ for the silver so yep, now he's yep. uh, you know mm-hmm. averse to it because christ was crucified the cross is now an affront to him so it gives you this whole backstory i like but it. then there's mm. this this beautiful kind of written scene where He's on the roof of this building in New Orleans, and he's yelling at God. And he's like, why am I being punished? I did what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. It was foretold in the damn Bible. Yeah, Somebody had seems... to betray him for this to happen. Right, and now right. I'm the bad guy. And it's kind of like, you're like, wow, that is an interesting perspective. Right? That always well, seemed weird to me. Is like Jesus was like, you're going to betray me. And then, you know, he does. And then he gets punished for it. It's yeah. like, well, you made me do it yeah. with How your future I... powers. What was I supposed to do? What was I supposed to do? Overpower God? Right. Yeah. So he was like the first path. Pretty much, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, maybe, yeah. Maybe he reincarnated Delay. Right. And he's like, mm-hmm. not again. <laughs> Just connecting dots. Where does <laughs> the garlic pilot was Ruby or what? <laughs> where did the garlic thing come from? Uh, it's just. Garlic stinks. <laughs> no, garlic the, the whole the idea best. of garlic, and yeah. that that came along later, was it um, kind of like gargoyles? Anything that's an affront would bother things of evil. So that's why you put up gargoyles. It's so hideous and ugly. Nothing evil wants to go there, and, and garlic stinks <laughs> I'm glad evil so bad. Things have standards. Well, actually, <laughs> right. But here, here's the here's the perception. Remember who evil is. They're the cast out angels right, that are right. so arrogant. And yeah. and when the devil comes back, he's not going to be this hideous horned thing. Be a he's a being of light. He <laughs> <laughs> was Lucifer, God's right hand right. man. He's yeah. a he's a being of light and mm-hmm. beauty. So Lucifer them, literally means light bearer. It's an affront to see these hideous things. Ah. So you carve jack o' lanterns to scare off the evil because it's like that's so hideous. I can't cast mm. my gaze. Yeah, on I'm too good that, for this right. garlic. So garlic yeah. stinks so bad, you know that. That but that's, it tastes so good. It does, it does taste it so good. Delicious. That's the thing. But it's funny to hear where all these things come from and yeah, how they yeah. how they came to this position. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's all folk tales, right? Right. I mean, well, it's all allegedly, folk, allegedly, right. Yeah. That's what they say. I don't know. That, that stuff is fascinating to me, though. Hmm. And by the way, Tevin, we we're talking about Yahweh. I don't. You don't realize uh, Jesus and Yahweh would be the same thing. Oh, okay, perfect. Thank you. His real name was, was actually Joshua. Who's that? <laughs> That's right. It really was. Did you know that? The, uh, the theory yeah, is that yeah. it was Joshua. Jesus, they don't know where that came from. They don't know where Jesus came from. Well, no. Yahweh is Probably. God. Yeah. That's the tetragrammaton. Yeah, Yahweh is God. The what? Y-H-W-H. The tetra- tetragrammaton. Tetra is four. Grammaton. Letters? I like how he says like it's just common. Right. It's tetragrammaton. Right. 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 It's a little known fact. It's a, it's a tetradentogram. <laughs> <It's, laughs> <laughs> to Catholics, the whole YHWH thing is like a big deal. Yeah. Apparently. But you can read that as either Yahweh or uh, Jehovah because of the way Hebrew was. Jehovah. And that's where those Jehovah. two came from. <laughs> I keep thinking of Monty Python. Remember the guy's dad? Jehovah. Jehovah. He's going to get hanged. <laughs> dancing around. Oh, no, he's going to get crucified. So he's and uh, he crucified upside down. Oh, God. I've been hanging here now for three days. Can I get down? <laughs> was that the life of Brian? Yeah, I yeah. think it was life. God, I loved it. Oh, <laughs> that's that's the uh, when they're all hanging on the cross singing. Yes. What's the song? It's uh, like uh, look, always look on the life. bright side of life. God, the I love that song. My favorite scene is John Cleese grabs a sandal from the ground. He goes, "This is the sandal of the Savior," and I should know because I've followed a few. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love John Cleese. Oh, John Cleese! Um, he was so great last week. When he was going, he, they asked him to become a lord, and he said, 
well, if I become a lord, does that mean I have to be here in the winter? He said, yes, you do. And he goes, forget it. Nice. <laughs> he didn't want to be in the cold. But he said he wanted to be a lord for a while just to tell all the other members of Python that I'm a lord and you're not. <laughs> I don't know. That, whole, that group knocked me out when I was a kid. Monty Python, oh, my God, that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. You know, you look at that. I love the meaning of life. That movie meaning to me is awesome. awesome. Yeah. When I grew up, when I was a teenager, all these great things like Richard Pryor from One Culture, the Brits, uh, you know, they came on with Monty Python. You look at all the, the Jews had a very big 40s, 50s, 60s, I mean, through that whole era. Um, all those different cultures stepped up and started sharing their humor, which I think is fantastic. I just love that. You know. Except the Chinese. We didn't get any Chinese humor. We didn't get any Chinese. Why didn't we get any Chinese humor? I don't think there's a lot of Chinese humor. There is not a lot of Chinese It's like German humor. humor. You just don't see it. Nine! Take my wife, I command you. Oh, my wife, I command you. Take my wife, I command you. Wife, yes. I command you. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's the only German joke I know. We have a guest coming up. Um, is that correct? Yes, Ann K. Howard. She'll be calling in a few minutes uh, her conversation with a serial killer. Oh, God. Yeah, cheery stuff. Yeah, whenever you come in, it's all such a bright spark. Yeah. I'm actually <laughs> She just called in, so yes. We will be right back with Ann K. Howard right after this. Tom Bernard Show. Tom Bernard here to tell you, Priority Courier Experts has immediate openings for drivers looking for more. Priority drivers are independent contractors who set their own hours, start from their own driveways, and deliver local on-call parcels and freight, which means you're home for dinner every night, and you get paid weekly. Right now, Priority's driver-friendly lease-to-own program has brand-new dock trucks, flatbeds, curtain sides, and tractor trailers just waiting to be driven home. And Priority is also offering a $4,000 sign-on bonus to qualified drivers. So if you've got the skills, we can get you qualified to start driving a brand new truck in as little as three days. Calling all drivers. Come get the $4,000 sign-on bonus you deserve for all the knowledge and experience you bring to the delivery business. Call Roger or Eddie right now at 651-748-4477 or visit them online at Priority.com. Priority Courier Experts. Every time you call us, we deliver. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. When you call Sabre for service, you'll get a certified technician that's an expert at diagnosing, repairing, and installing heating and air conditioning equipment. Sabre Techs give you the service you need, not the other stuff that you don't need. When you combine that with Sabre's A rating for customer service and the best equipment from Bryant, you get exactly what you need. So make the call to Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning today. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. I thought you were playing the sound as islands there. Some things in life are bad. Oh, really <laughs> I just love them. Other things just make you swear and Might curse. Swear and curse. <laughs> <laughs> Monty Python, ladies and gentlemen. Now, did Monty Python ever have a conversation with a serial killer? I don't know. I don't think so. Good. I'm pretty sure. Good. Ann K. Howard, our special guest. How are you doing, Ann? Good. How are you, Tom? Marvelous. A monster was on a killing spree in just nine months. Seven people went missing. All of their bodies eventually discovered in a wooded lot behind a suburban strip mall. The investigation that led law enforcement to their suspect, William Devon Howell. Ann, I don't know. This is unbelievable. So you, conversations with a serial killer. You sat down. You've written a book about it. How did you how did you come to have conversations with a serial killer anyway? Well, uh, I had a blog at the time. Uh, I write about all sorts of solved and unsolved serial murders, mostly in Connecticut. The blog is called Serial Murders in Connecticut. So I started that back in February of 2015. And while I was researching other serial murders, I kept coming across the fact that there were these seven bodies found behind this very busy strip mall in New Britain, Connecticut, and they still hadn't located who the killer was. Uh, so in May of 2015, the attorney general for the state had a, a national press conference with William Devin Howell's mugshot right behind him on camera and said that they had a person of interest. Um, naturally, I thought, ooh, I want to write this guy. Uh, I'm going to write him in prison. He was serving a 15-year sentence for one of the seven murders. So I wrote to him in July of 2015 
saying to him, I'd like to meet with you. I'd like to write a book about you. And immediately, you know, to my surprise, he got right back to me and was totally open to the idea. So wait, he got 15 years for killing seven people? Just one of the seven. So, yeah, one of the seven um, that he he got 15 years for back in 2007, and that was because uh, he took what's called an Alfred plea in Connecticut, yeah, kind of yeah. like a no-contest thing right. where he says, you know, I'm not saying I'm guilty, but I'm uh, saying the prosecution has enough evidence to uh, show a jury beyond reasonable doubt. And a body had never been found in that murder. There was just one drop of that victim's blood found in the back of this infamous murder mobile that he drove around in. So there wasn't a lot of evidence back in 2007. Uh, And for all those reasons, he just got 15 years. But by the time I started writing to him and visiting him, the six remaining murders that he had been charged with, there was a ton of evidence at that mm. point against him. There were six out of seven DNA samples found in that van. So Ooh. I knew he was going down. He knew he was going down. Uh, we don't have the death penalty in Connecticut anymore. So fair to say everybody, including the prosecutors and likely his defense attorneys as well, knew that this man was going to rot in prison for the rest of his life. If you did have the death penalty, they could have written Will Howell, Will Howell in electric chair. That's a good one. Howell, Will Howell in the electric chair. And where in Connecticut did this take place? In New Britain, Connecticut, oh, okay. um, you know, it's it's a, a busy suburb, um, you know, it's right across where he buried these bodies. It's right across from this huge upscale shopping mall. Ooh. It's on this busy commercial highway. So I, I often think of the audacity of this man because when he confessed all of these crimes to me, you know, I got to know him for two years. We rarely discussed any of the open cases against him. And he promised me that when legal resolution took place, that he would finally tell me just how, when, and where, and why everything happened, which ultimately he did. In September of 2017, he started to confess to me after he pled guilty. But the audacity of of the commission of these crimes was that when he buried all these bodies behind this strip mall, it was always in broad daylight. And when he, you know, would hold his victims captive in his van for 12-hour periods doing atrocious things, you know, raping and torturing them and whatnot. Again, it was was usually in broad daylight. He would park the van in in busy parking lots, McDonald's, Super uh, Motel 6 parking lots, Motel 8 parking lots. Um, So, you know, it, it all took place in a suburb just like any suburb across America that you'd find. You know, and I got to tell you, I love Connecticut, and now you've ruined it for me. Way to go. (laughs) (laughs) And and was there a reason that he chose that shopping mall as a burial spot? Oh, I like it. You know, he finally divulged that to me uh, when he confessed the crimes. Why, of all places, that strip mall? And he said his girlfriend at the time of the commission of these murders in 2003, it was a nine-month killing spree, and the girlfriend he had at the time, Uh, worked at a hair salon in that strip mall. And Bill Howell, as he goes by Bill, um, he would visit his girlfriend at the Great Cuts Hair Salon on lunch break and bring her her Arby's beef and cheddars, you know. And after he would eat lunch with her, he would circle his van around to the back of the parking lot, and he saw that there was this 15 acres of state-owned forest that stretched behind that strip mall. And he looked at the guardrail that traced the parking lot with the edge of that forest. And he saw that there was a steep ravine, wooded ravine. And uh, it went down about 20 feet and that people had dumped a lot of hedge trimmings and some garbage and litter back in that, that, that pit. So he started, because he was a landscaper, he mowed lawns for a living, he thought, well, maybe I'll start dumping my hedge trimmings back there after I mow people's lawns, and then when he finally went about killing these people, well, that would be a good place to dump their bodies. So what he would do is he would toss the bodies into that ravine, 
circle his van into the neighboring McDonald's parking lot and park it there and then run back into that ravine and take the bodies and drag them several hundred feet into the forest to his burial ground, which, according to one jailhouse inmate, he called his garden, which is the whole reason I called the book His Garden, Conversations with a Serial Killer. That was the name for the burial ground. And what is it that causes a serial killer? Is there one thing? Is it a group of things? What is it? You know what I, re- I, I really conclude in the book, that if I had to say what it was that ca- caused this man to commit these atrocities, I think it's a sexual paraphilia, yeah. um, mm-hmm. i.e. a sexual sadism. Most uh, serial killers, you know, have some kind of a sexual sadism. It's not about sex per se. It's about power and making people suffer. And I think, in, in, you know, based on my talking to him and, and the research I did, I, I, I think it's just bad wiring in the brain, mm-hmm. whether or not he was born with it or it's something that grew over time. But I also talk a lot in the book, book that it's not just that simple, that I think there were a lot of contributing causes that sure. fed into what was already a neurological disease. And in his case, just a lifetime of abject powerlessness. Yeah. You know, he, he, the mother of his children took the kids out of state. She wouldn't let her, him see her babies. He was chronically incarcerated simply for driving without a license. In, throughout his 20s, he kept getting busted for driving without a license. So I think there were a lot of things in his life that bred in him a, a, a huge rage and anger and a sense that he had no power. He had no social status. You know, he lived out of the back of his van and he mowed lawns for mm-hmm. a living. Right. You know, so when he was committing these heinous acts in the back of his van, he mm. told me that the adrenaline rush was just huge. The experience of power for the first time in his life, he had power over another person, and he had power over life and death. So it was power, but it was also you will suffer as I have suffered. I think so, yeah. yeah. And I, I yeah. think he, took, he he specifically took it out on a target group of drug-addicted prostitutes. Oh, yeah. And he yeah. had this kind of weird moral code in his head because, you know, he, he's... For all intent and purpose, he, he's a pretty nice southern gentleman, believe it or not. Pretty friendly guy. Uh, he had a lot of friends, sociable guy. A lot of people liked him. He's very courteous and respectful to most people. But to that target group he had, he he just had this weird hatred for drug-addicted prostitutes. He saw them as worthless objects. And so he had no trouble in his mind punishing them for their lifestyle on the street. Sounds like Jack the Ripper, kind of. Yeah, exactly. And actually, that's common of so many serial killers these days. In my blog, I just wrote about one in Springfield, Massachusetts. Same thing. Police pulled him over. There was a poor woman you know, trapped in his van, uh, a drug-addicted woman, and and they went back to this guy's house, and he had several of these women, uh, their dead bodies were at the house, but these serial killers now prey on drug-addicted prostitutes because it's easy. It's easy to find them. It's easy to get them to come into your car, and um, that's why the book I write, you know, it's just as much about the heroin epidemic in our country, and especially in Connecticut, the heroin's huge here, that leads these women to living on the streets and makes them vulnerable to these sick monsters. Probably not in New Canaan, though. Mm, you never know. They're everywhere. <laughs> I They're love everywhere. That and I love that town of New Canaan. It's unbelievable. It is a Connecticut's a beautiful state. Really nice. It is where where I live is Northwest Connecticut, and mm. and I feel like when my husband and I moved to this house five years ago, I mean the cost of this house in this part of Connecticut. If you get a house like this, 
in the parts of Connecticut that are closer to New York City or the the coastline, it's going to be worth millions of dollars. We and and believe me, our house is not worth millions of dollars. <laughs> um, we're we're right in the hills with rivers and hiking trails. Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous. Three acres of land. I feel like we're in a bed and breakfast every day of my life. I wake up in a resort. Well, Catherine and I are coming out to stay with you. I don't know if you know that or not. You are welcome. <laughs> guest time. room ready. Was there and was there something about? Uh, we already talked about the fact that his wife kind of, I don't know, you couldn't say lorded over him, I guess. But did his was his mother kind of harsh to him as well? Uh, that's a great question because I'm always fascinated. What was your relationship with the mother like? You always, know, and, yeah. and I write. I write in the book, it's like Freudian, you know, he's lying on the couch and I'm saying to him, tell me about your mother, you know, because <laughs> for a lot of serial killers like Ted Bundy, right? They yes. had these psycho mothers who were incredibly controlling and hateful and abusive to their sons. And he gets very upset with me when I ask him about his mother. There you go. I know. There you go. <laughs> he, it's it's almost like I hit a little too close mm. to home. Was dad in the um, picture? He, well, yep. Um, oh. he, he actually had a very traditional upbringing. I go a lot Man. to his childhood in the book that his father was a hardworking blue-collar machinist in Virginia. His mother, you know, worked a couple part-time jobs. The parents stayed married until both of them died. And and um, his mother was a very strict disciplinarian. There with you him. go. Yep. She did spank him a lot. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I write, if if everyone who was spanked in America, my son included, became a serial killer, <laughs> we, we'd all have a lot mm-hmm. of problems, wouldn't we? Yeah. <laughs> no, Anna, so, I have to ask you. I don't think it was just the spanking, no. but, no, but um, no. yeah, it was not an affectionate upbringing that he had. Uh, but I've certainly, you know, being an, a practicing attorney, I've encountered clients in my past who have had much more hellish childhood upbringings than Bill Howe. Um, but, yeah, the mother was a, a, a bit of a, a cold fish. That makes though. I have to ask you when you said, tell me about your childhood, were you doing Einstein or Dracula there? I couldn't tell. <laughs> you, you know, I, I'm not going to be auditioning for the audible of this book. Let's just say that, okay? And uh, terrific conversation. Now, uh, it just says here, promoting the book, Conversations with a Serial Killer. Now, but there... Th- there's a, a bit before that that I don't have on my bio. What's the actual name of the book? It's called His Garden. His Garden. H-I-S okay. Garden, which is what he called the, the burial ground. God, it's unbelievable. Yeah, when he was in prison in 2014, before he, he got charged with the remaining six murders, he, there was this jailhouse inmate that he was a cellmate with, and he confessed some of these crimes to that inmate and the man's name was Jonathan Mills and he himself was a quadruple murderer he's just an awful human being and a a serial killer also by definition and um, Bill Howell told Mills that he called this burial ground his garden he also said to Mills allegedly things like um, that he called the van where he held these women captive and and killed them the murder mobile and he called himself the sick ripper he said I'm oh, a sick God. ripper yeah so there are a lot of dramatic tidbits that made writing this story pretty easy um, in terms of making it into a page-turning read. <laughs> Terrific. Ann K. Howard, ladies and gentlemen, His Garden Conversations with a Serial Killer. Thanks so much. Fascinating stories. Uh, they're not stories. They're truths, actually. But I uh, appreciate your time today. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. Have a great day, everyone. You too. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be okay. back. Bye-bye. Tom Bernard Show.